0: Hi everyone, some of you already know that I was recently in New York and I wrote a piece about Marcel Breyer, one of the most famous modern designers and architects of the 20th century. Even if you aren't familiar with Breyer's name, you've probably already seen his chairs and his buildings. Um, Breyer was born in Hungary, he grew up in the city of Pech before leaving for Germany to attend the Bauhaus school in 1920, and later he emigrated to the United States. Um, Even though Breuer passed away in 1981, in the US I was still able to find people who knew him. For my article, I ended up interviewing 16 people, including Breuer's friends and family and colleagues and and academics. Uh, If you're interested in the piece I wrote, you can find it on my website, Offbeat Budapest. I also made an audio version of it, which is linked here in the podcast notes. So during my research, I met Professor Barry Bergdahl, who is the leading Breyer scholar in the United States. Barry's uh, distinguished resume would be too long to recite in full here. I'll just mention that he's a professor of art history at Columbia University. He was also the chief curator of architecture and design at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Uh, and he's also part of the nine-member jury, which every year awards the Pritzker Prize, uh, the most prestigious award um, in architecture, sort of the the noble for, for architects. Um, I visited Barry um, last week at his uh, Columbia office, and we spoke about many things, including Breyer's years at the Bauhaus, about the Bauhaus School itself, and how it differed from the more traditional art academies at the time, about the enduring legacy of Breuer's Cheska chair, about how Breuer's residential houses differed from the pure functionalist buildings. Um, we spoke about his teaching at Harvard, his fallout with uh, Walter Gropius, uh, Breuer's brutalist period, um, his legacy in the United States, and also his personal side, including his fondness for peppering his talk with Hungarian folk expressions. I hope you'll enjoy it.
1: Well, you know, I think that what we don't know outside of Hungary, and maybe it's well known in Hungarian sources, which I don't read, but um, and I was talking a little bit to over the years with Josef Sija and with um, András Verkai about this, but this whole, you know, what is the whole context of the, in Hungary? in the 1930s when he tries to go back for a while in the Budapest yeah. trade fair and that you know yeah. that whole scene i think is known to hungarians but not to us and i expect that that is a a kind of missing aspect of the way you know we people in Breuer's adopted country analyze him that we don't really fully understand the hungarian context i mean maybe a little bit the context of Peish at the time of his childhood, but the context of Budapest in the 1930s when he attempts briefly to go back. And then there was another thing. Did I talk to you about this the last time? That I f- found this letter in which, uh, in, when he was in England, mm. a um, English architect was going to Budapest, and he said, oh, be sure to call in on my sister. She has a shop. Did I tell you about this? You briefly passing mentioned she has a shop of, of Hungarian folk. folk art, and yeah. I want to know about that shop. Actually, funny
0: enough, because during my research, I spoke to someone, a very distant relative of Breuer, who remembered uh, Mimi Neni, Hermina who was Breyer's sister, and uh, and he said that so Hermina emigrated in 1956 from Budapest to Vienna, but the store remained open during communism. He still remembered it was open until like the eighties, and it's right on Vardarshmar which is the oh, very yeah, that's heart of the Budapest.
1: Main, the main avenue. Yeah, yeah. Wow.
0: <laughs> so I think it's it's possible to sort of I mean whoever is interested, I mean probably people like us to like puzzle information together. Um, but yeah, I think about this Hungarian, uh, the Hungarian aspect is is interesting because I went through all his Hungarian correspondence with the sister that are uploaded in the archives, like two hundred something letters. And people, I think people don't realize it so much. He really was pretty attached to Hungary. I mean, he maintained that correspondence. Even he was corresponding with this Hungarian architect uh, who was back home who was, wanted to convince him to build in a castle hill first. And he said, I'll do it. I'll do it for free if you can make it happen. But he couldn't make it happen. So I Did, think you know, he, did he
1: ever go back to Hungary in after the war?
0: He went back only in 1970 to accept that honorary degree from the Budapest University of Technology, not before that. I think, I mean, he was very much probably opposed to the regime. I mean, I don't know why he didn't go. He would go to Paris all the time.
1: Uh, well, in Paris, too, he had Hungarian friends. So for instance, the photographer Lucien Hervé, who's Hungarian, I met Lucien Hervé a number of times and got photographs from him and looked through his photographs and have been in touch with his widow, uh, Judith um, Hervé. Um, and. Uh, you know, you said when Breuer came, they spoke Hungarian together, but, although Breuer spoke French, but um, so, you know, I think everywhere, everywhere he went, there, I mean, I think that's Hungarians because, country, you know, either, you, either you're, if you speak Hungarian, you're Hungarian, so.
0: <laughs> Explain how you got interested in Breuer in general, given the background that you, your, your, your scholarly background is more in 19th century architecture, not so much modernism.
1: Unfortunately, there's a prelude. Tell me if it's too much detail or too long. Yes, I'm primarily a historian of late 18th and 19th century European architecture. I've been to Hungary several times looking at 19th century (laughs) architecture, of course. Hungarian parliament figures towards the end of my survey book uh, because I tried to have a a vision of European architecture that extended beyond beyond Western Europe a little bit, and particularly as that book was written. Uh, in the decade after the fall of communism Um, but the move into being overwhelmingly preoccupied with the 20th century came actually with the invitation to work on this big Mies van der Rohe project and as I was finishing the Mies van der Rohe project we'd opened the exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art called Mies in Berlin published this big book on Mies Um, a friend of mine was in charge of uh, acquisitions of architectural books for Fiden Press. And at that time, Fiden Press was owned by a man named, had recently been bought by a man named Richard Schlagman, who had bought Breuer's house on Lago Maggiore, outside of Ascona, um, the um, Kerfer house. Uh-huh. And he wanted desperately to have a book on Breuer, and one day I was. Um, changing trains at 53rd Street. I was on the escalator in the 53rd Street subway stop. I was going up, she was going down, and she said, we need a book on Breuer. Why don't you write a book on Breuer? And I said, okay, that sounds great. I love Breuer. We separated like that. It was supposed to be a comprehensive book on Breuer, single book on Breuer, all of Breuer that I was to write. And so I started working on that and I spent um, several years going to see as many Breuer buildings as I could. I think there may be well maybe a couple of houses but there are only maybe five or six significant Breuer buildings that I've never seen. I spent I can't tell you how many days in the archive at Syracuse. In fact I was sitting in the archive on 9-11 when we saw on the screens the planes flying into the World Trade Center reading Breuer correspondence and then the whole world seemed to change. But then I started working at the Museum of Modern Art and I could never finish this book. Uh. And we did an exhibition, since the archives are at Syracuse with a Syracuse professor, we did a course one year with the students. I flew up every every other week and we had an intensive course using the Breuer archive and the students did research and they did an exhibition at the end Mm. and we brought together a kind of jury to discuss the exhibition and the students' projects and their interpretations of Breuer um, and of people who had thought about some aspect of Breuer but hadn't written on Breuer. And we had such an amazing conversation for two days talking about that, that exhibition and those student research papers. And I mean, it was amazing because the students were you know, laying out all the drawings and working mm-hmm. directly with the materials. But the conversation was so great among these younger architectural historians that we had brought to Syracuse. We said, this should be a book. So that book comes out of that event. I see, okay. and it got me off the hook because I never wrote this book. So, one. But you can I, finish it now. Well, I think one interesting thing to say, and you know, maybe it's a worthy topic of conversation about Breuer is. So on one level, I was being so fastidious; I really wanted to see every building, and he built an incredible amount, and almost on, well, with the exception of Antarctica and Africa, every continent. Uh, and uh, but you know. I've, seen, I've even been to the building in Australia, I've been almost everywhere, not the Grand Coulee Dam, so that was slowing me down. But I think I was also being had a bit of a block because I could not come up with an overall uh, interpretation of Breuer. I could come up with interpretations of aspects of Breuer, but I wasn't coming up with uh, the big picture. I guess I couldn't find what it was that I wanted to say as a big story about Breuer, you know, and I had a kind of whole new approach, I thought, to, to nice, Mies mm-hmm. and I was frustrated, I couldn't find this with, with Breuer, so in the end, I think my approach to Breuer has been a bit like my perception of Breuer, it's, it's, it's chapters rather than mm-hmm. the big, I mean, the narrative total, you, you know, totalizing Breuer. Did you
0: do an exhibit at the MoMA about him, or did you want to do
1: it? I did want, I had various ideas that I wanted to do about um, Breuer, and I got very involved that I thought could be an exhibition. But just before I went to MoMA Vitra had done that big circulating exhibition. So that came to Washington, it came to other places, so a a Breuer retrospective didn't make any sense when Vitra was circulating that exhibition. Um, I wanted to do an exhibition about Breuer's Frank House in Pittsburgh, which is a whole complicated matter uh, because the furniture exists because it was the biggest commission because it was very controversial and at that time I had a, a working relationship with the very idiosyncratic owner of that house um, did You didn't let anyone in right? No, well I went many many times and I read the correspondence which is there which is which was fascinating but ultimately um, it, it just didn't work out I and mean, it's, too, it's too complicated um, mm-hmm. Let's say he's one of these people who believes certain things and if a historian tells him no, the evidence points in a different direction, he doesn't want to hear it and he gets very angry. Um, (laughs) Interesting, yeah. Um, So left it at that. So that that never happened. And that was supposed to be in part an exhibition that would um, galvanize people to think that when the owner dies, this house might be threatened. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a, a very complicated matter, but... So, um you know, neither the exhibition nor the big book ever happened, but we were able yeah. to put together that. Um Are you do you have anthology. any plans to, to continue with that book or that's No, I think I've moved on to other okay. things. And then yeah. I, I might I'll write other essays in which Breuer comes in because I've learned so much about um about Breuer. So I've also I've become a kind of go to person yeah. about Breuer, people asking me questions all the time.
0: Yeah. Um okay uh what i had in mind and you know it's we're not going to be all day i promise it's not going to be too much of your time but i sort of highlighted a few like key milestones about breyer's life and maybe we could touch upon those and you can just say what you sort of think about that period of his of his life okay um so the first one is obviously grew up in page and just in parentheses, i don't know did you go ever go to page i've not been to page i would love to go to page page is a really really cool city it's it's you know in like Southwest Hungary, so it's close to the Croatian border. It has those more like Mediterranean vibes than the rest of the country. It was part of the Ottoman Empire. They have two Ottoman mosques still there, University City, lots yeah. of art. So it's, it's one of my favorites, it's, it's great. Um, so just FYI. Um, but so he grows up in, in right? Then he first is admitted at Vienna, the Viennese Academy of Art. Quickly is disillusioned and instead ends up at the Bauhaus with some fellow uh, uh, people from Page. Uh, can you just sort of describe, I mean I think everyone has heard of the Bauhaus, but how, how was the Bauhaus then an avant-garde art school different from a place like the Viennese Academy of Art?
1: I hope I won't be inaccurate because I haven't studied the Viennese Academy of Art, so I'm going to maybe stereotype it as a, things that were typical still of academies of fine arts and their idea of instruction in the period before and indeed right after the First World War, which was still based on the notion that the way to perfect your skill was essentially copying and imitating and then you would move towards being an independent artist. So a a painter or sculptor would start by studying the human figure, making studying anatomy and learning how to represent the human figure in life modeling classes, and an architect would study historic buildings obviously learn the classical orders of architecture probably go on um you know sketching tours to look at famous buildings and and study them so the biggest thing that shifts in the Bauhaus is the complete abolition of the notion of imitation as the way to become an artist for all sorts of sometimes competing uh, theories of how can you unleash artistic creativity in visual in in visual forms. The other thing about the Bauhaus was, of course, is in the Absolute Manifesto, was the abolition of the distinction between the fine arts, painting, sculpture, architecture, printmaking, uh, and the applied arts, mm-hmm. um, so ceramics, so on and so forth, so refusing that and in fact giving the applied arts um, a real centrality in the curriculum. Mm-hmm. So materials making become part of the Bauhaus but also these exercises in what we would think of as abstract form sometimes with a very spiritual overtone in the case of the instruction of Johannes Itten which was very dominant in the very first years of the Bauhaus moving towards of course Kandinsky arrives he too with a whole notion of the spiritual in art Uh, a little bit of a a mysticism there still lingering after the first world war. and then gradually a more um, well not a total abolition of the spiritual, but a move towards a more functionalist mechanical mm-hmm. view we sometimes associated with the arrival, for instance, of Maholi. Um, so that's a huge, you know that's a, a huge cultural shift. It's a philosophical shift, and it's a, um, you know, it's a major realignment of how. Art is made. Both what is, what is an artist? Where does creativity come from? Uh, what does an artist make? And who is the audience for these products? It's also mm-hmm. daily consumers and not just collectors. And it's making art that is for use in daily life and not art that aspires, mm-hmm. not art that's trained in the academy and ultimately hopes to get back into the academy to be hung and admired. Mm-hmm. So it's not a you know it's not alone. That's a very common thread in avant-garde movements of those periods, yeah. but the Bauhaus as an institution. And why do really you think it was
0: like. the Bauhaus that everyone sort of associates with when we think of this this novelty and modern movement, as opposed to, I mean, there are other places. There was a place the Vudemas, right in Moscow. Uh, the the Deutsche Werkbund did
1: something similar previously. So well, it wasn't- the Deutsche Werkbund didn't have any instruction, so it wasn't a school. So when I did a Bauhaus exhibition in 2009 with Leah Dickerman at the Museum of Modern Art, what we said over and over again, we wanted to show was that the Bauhaus was not a style. There's no absolute unity in the Bauhaus. The Bauhaus was a school with all of its diversity. So even in 14 year period, things shift all the time, but there are also competing interests. But though that little attempt at a synopsis about the abolition of imitation and the unleashing of, of creativity, um, is really what unites all these diverse activities of the Bauhaus. Why was it, uh, you know, much more famous than Vkhutemas uh, in Moscow, which has got lots of uh, points of, well, it has some points of concrete contact, but certain lots of parallelisms and some things that we celebrate and admire in the Bauhaus actually could be found happening earlier in Vkhutemas, but it's in the Soviet Union I mean who's going to the Soviet Union some people are going to the Soviet Union as a kind of curiosity trip but it's not the Vakutamas is not um, you know so ironically this little town of Weimar becomes a kind of um, point of encounter and transition and everyone is passing through not only the students who are like Breuer practically you know going to Compostello or Jerusalem, going to Weimar in order not for Goethe and Schiller, but for Gropius and uh, um, Kandinsky and the like, but also all the people who came there to give lectures or to come for the exhibition in 1923, um, and then you've got these disruptors who arrive. They don't need to go to Russia because El comes to them. They don't yeah. need to go to um, to the Netherlands because Van uh, you know, Doesburg yes. comes to them, and they're very influential, also sort of disruptive. So um, uh-huh. it's both a, a place of encounter, but a place of what you could call kind of creative conflict of, of variances, of shades mm-hmm. of, a, mm-hmm. um, of opinion. So I think that's why this very small place got such an outsized reputation already during its own existence because it was a magnet for so many people. Yeah.
0: Um, okay, and then Breuer gets there um, in 1920. He's immediately inspired by this atmosphere. He, he likes it. Very quickly he establishes himself as a sort of star student. Gropius takes a liking of him. There's no architecture teaching at the Bauhaus back then, but he practices at Gropius's office.
1: I think Breuer, like all students, was a bit floating around trying to figure out which of the workshops that he wanted to be um, associated with uh as you say there was no architectural instruction although we know from a lot of research that's happened in the last 20 years that um, the Bauhaus wasn't a sealed cell of avant-garde activity the students who were interested in architecture often went and took technical courses at the local technical school so happily so they did have some idea of how to make a building stand up and not simply how to draw a expressionist uh, commune although some of the drawings some of the earliest drawings from some of them represent the near absence of technical training in the Bauhaus itself they're very almost like child's drawings of buildings Um, so that is this irony paradox that the Bauhaus is so associated with architecture but didn't teach it until after Gropius was in the after they moved to Dessau, and while Gropius was in the process of, of leaving, when he called Hannes Meyer there in, in 27, first to, head up the uh, a brand new architecture, uh, program, and then, to see it, as it turned out to succeed him as director. By that time, Breuer had also had gone away and come back and became a so-called young master, um, at Dessau. But at, in Weimar as a student, and then later in Dessau, it was primarily furniture, mm-hmm. that he was involved with. So. Um there was a period when people were very rude about um, Breuer's architecture, most famously a comment that really hurt Breuer a great deal from the famous American architectural historian Vincent Scully, who said that, you know, Breuer's a brilliant cabinet maker and his buildings are just big pieces of furniture. He said uh, that? Yes. Uh, but I do think one of the the for me, one of the great evidences of Breuer's genius is that he with A kind of patchwork of whatever he could have gotten technical training and working in a school where architecture wasn't taught and then the connection to to Gropius out of all of that in my mind he became a very forceful and very original um, you know architect by the already by the very end of the 1920s of course there's also the interesting thing of the very strong presence of Hungarians in Gropius's Gropius's milieu. Forbath. You know, so. Forbath Forbat and Fokar Neither of whom are students at the Bauhaus. So there's also Molnar was. Molnar was? Forbath was. Forbath was not. Yeah. So you also have this phenomena of people who are working at the Bauhaus but are not students who are not formally teachers. Yeah.
0: yeah. I think it was just sort of a funny, just an accidental page thing because they're all from page. So one told, you. I think it was Forbat who initially told Briar, hey, check out the Bauhaus.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's very frequent in educational institutions where, uh, you know, one or two people starts a trend going. So in the early 20th century, the University of Pennsylvania School of Architecture was filled with Chinese. So the influence of the University of Pennsylvania on Chinese architecture in the first half of the 20th century is enormous. Why? Because one or two people went there and then they said, no, that's the place to go. Yeah, yeah I mean, big. we're talking about people who are 17 years old deciding yeah. what to, where to go somewhere, they're going to take the advice of their friends. Yeah,
0: yeah exactly.
1: Um, let's very briefly talk about something
0: that Breuer did not like to talk about much later in his life, which is his, his furnitures. Because to me, that was, as I was doing my research, is news that in 1923, when he first did uh, furniture from bent metal, he really was the first person to do it in
1: the world. Well, that got to be a huge controversy, as you probably run into. Yeah, so, later. Well, Not so much the bending metal per se, but the bending metal in order to create a cantilever so that there are no back legs to the chair so that the chair is, seems magically to be supported on the, uh, on the, on the front. Um, and so this almost s form of the chair and figuring out the structure of that but there was a big was a whole book on the litigation that was involved over who invented the um, who invented the cantilever the bent metal cantilever chair the Dutchman Mart Stam who probably was first but his metal wasn't bent he kind of assembled all these pipes and so there were joints uh-huh. but. Um, and then Mies as well, was working on an embroider all all at exactly the same time, so you, you could say, and it becomes a patent battle, and frequently in patent battles this is a kind of idea that 's in the air, and then there 's a fight over who 's the you know who did it in March as opposed to april uh, and But the three approaches are are very, very different, and I think that what whether Breuer was first in a in the court of law doesn't matter to my mind Mart Stam's is a little bit awkward Mises furniture has always got a kind of um, a desired heaviness a kind of gravitas in a way Um, you know Breuer's famous poster for a fake film where we end up with the chair disappearing he's always looking for the light and the floating and then the most beautiful thing about the Breuer by the time he gets to, I think it would be 25, but by the, the chair that we call the the, the Cheska chair. Um, those names, of course, come much, much later. Um, obviously his daughter Cheska is, uh, <laughs> is not, not in around. his mind when he makes this chair uh, in the middle of the 1920s. But the thing that's so beautiful about it, it's as though uh, you are drawing an absolutely continuous line, but the continuous line has no end. So it's almost like those, Topological drawings of, say, an strip where the inside and the outside are the same thing. Uh, so, this absolutely continuous line, largely because the single joint is hidden in the, apo- in the covering of the chair. So, it's disguised that there is a point of encounter. It's beautifully delicate. And yeah. then with the cane back
0: and yeah. the seat. Is, yeah. And I mean, and of the three you mentioned, the cheska is the one that really had an enduring legacy, right? I mean, even today it's still yeah. very popular. Um, and it's sort of funny because doing my research now, it came up so many times that he really did not want to be thought of and relegated into this furniture designer. He's like, I'm an
1: architect. Well, there's some quote I, where he says something like, that damn chair, you know, you just cannot get away from that chair. But for years, I'd say well into the late 1980s, so after Breuer's death, there was every single week in the Sunday Times magazine, there's a magazine section, it's very popular, it comes with the Sunday New York Times, in the back of it, there's a lot of advertisements, an ad for the Broyochesca cheska chair, which you could buy relatively inexpensively. There are also a lot of copies of it. Um, But it's it's undoubtedly, at least in this country, the most ubiquitous modern chair.
0: I see it everywhere, it's so versatile, yeah. amazing. Um, okay, um, so then moving on, he, he leaves, with Gropius, he leaves the Bauhaus in 1928, and then he sort of, for the next more or less 10 years, he's like drifting about in Europe. You know, he travels a lot, he's looking for architecture commissions in Zurich, in Budapest, in, in London, with sort of limited success. And in 1937, Gropius calls him, by then he's at Harvard, head of the architecture department, hey, come and join me on the faculty. And he's sort of very happy about that. Yeah. Um, and the buildings that they were building. So you want to
1: skip over the wandering years?
0: No, we don't, yeah. we don't have to. If there's anything, I guess I wasn't able to find that much about that period.
1: Well, there are still a lot of mysteries about that period, just as there's a mystery about the, the period when he left between being a student and coming back to the Bauhaus. We don't, he went to Paris, but we don't know exactly what he did. Some people have said, thinks he worked for Pierre Charrot. That's never been proven one way or the other, Um, and there's still lots of unknown things, as I said at the beginning of our conversation about, you know, why didn't it work out in Budapest, but of course, as that time progresses, you know, at first it looks like he's off to a great start, he's got all of his credentials to do what he wants to do, to be both an architect and a furniture designer and to get patents and to really mount a kind of, almost a furniture production company, and get commissions he's got the House Commission in Wiesbaden, which is unclear whether Gropius was involved with that or not, but in any case, that house in Wiesbaden is a you know an early masterpiece he's entering yeah. these competitions he's working with another Bauhaus pupil, Gustav Hassenflug. It get all sound. It all looks like it's going to going to take off so if it hadn't been for Hitler and the political events of nineteen thirty three so and so by the time he's moving around after between thirty three Thirty-seven, thirty-eight. That is not a time to be an architect anywhere. So if he's unsuccessful, it's—it's it's kind of almost there's a pathos in trying, keeping trying. Um, but he reconnects with Gropius in in Britain and does a number of buildings in Britain. Um, and so the, uh, there's a nice new book called Bauhaus Goes West by my old friend Alan Powers which really talks about the whole situation of these emigres in Britain in the 1930s, but many of them don't stay. Um, so the whole English period of Breuer is fascinating. Um, Breuer and Gropius are living in the same building in London, uh, but they have completely separate architectural practices, mm-hmm. and then they come come together in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um,
0: By the way, just sorry to interrupt. Those plywood chairs that he did in London in the nineteen thirties, I find that personally to be the most beautiful of his Well it's also
1: the single most comfortable chair I think I've ever sat in is the long Isakan chair. It's it's unbelievable. Really? It is is so comfortable. I don't know if you're I'm six feet which is happily exactly the modular one one meter eighty of of Corbusier so that chair is perfect for a person of my height maybe a taller person might hang off the end in uncomfortable ways but it's the most perfect it's not only a beautiful line it's the most perfect uh, posture for for reading and not falling asleep immediately Uh, and because the plywood is so thin it has a little it has what all of Breuer's furniture has, which is a little bit of bounce to it. So it's ever so slightly flexible. Mm-hmm. So you don't feel like your body's having a fight with the chair, but at the same time, it's not too um, too loose. So you wanted to know my thoughts about Breuer in his early years at, um, at, at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't immediately have a full faculty position and they had to um, sort of... Create a patchwork of things for him to do. I would love to learn more about one of the things he did, which is he created a kind of working archive of materials. He was almost curator of a material gallery uh, for the for the school. And I'd love to know more about that. I've never seen a picture of it. I've never read many descriptions of it. But he, you know, he starts the studio teaching, and at this point, he's very close to. To Gropius. They have a shared office above a shop front on Massachusetts Avenue in Cambridge, and they're starting to get projects, including from the wealthy parents of some of the students. But he was, I think, because he was younger than most of the faculty, um, and uh, even if he spoke at that point extremely heavily accented English, as from listening to tapes he always um, uh, did, the students, I think, identified with him. In a way, he was a kind of bridge between generations. Mm-hmm. And I, unfortunately, I never met him, but he, apparently he was unbelievably affable, lighthearted, and just fun to be around. So the, the students adored him. He was a huge success as an instructor. Um, and there were some famous students there. Some very famous students, yeah. So, so, yeah. so I am Pei and. Uh, yeah, I am yeah. Pei, uh, Paul Rudolph, lots of people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, well, the. pit. The, the conne- and then Breuer had connections to many of these former students. So am Pei and his wife, was a landscape designer, and Breuer and his wife actually went on trips together. There are photographs of these trips to the Grecian islands. Um, and they were, I don't know how Breuer uh, managed with his um, unbelievable number of friends, because half the clients become good friends. So you're not done with Breuer when the house is finished. I think. <laughs> they probably didn't
0: mind. <laughs> Um, okay, and then uh, can you just speak about those, those, some
1: of those early buildings that they did up in Cambridge, in Gropius? Yeah, so most of the early buildings are in, and in New England, and I think they quickly take on a, um, an ethos of what does it mean to make modernism in New England. So one thinks of modernism as something that gets generated out of big cities. You know, New York... Or Paris or Berlin, um, but of course, Breuer and Gropius had managed to make this happen from Weimar in a certain way. Cambridge, Massachusetts, was not unlike Weimar in that there was a strong tradition, a cr- strong cultural sense of what what was Cambridge, Massachusetts. Not only a university town, but in New England, very proud of its Puritan background, its Yankee background. The, um, you know, where they go and build the house is just a couple of miles from Thoreau's Pond, so they're immersed in the history of New England from colonial times through 19th century transcendentalism and they they managed to take experiments that they'd already begun in Europe about beginning to integrate more natural materials into the vocabulary of a what for want of a better word you could call a functionalist vision of an architecture, an architecture of pure white planar forms of of stucco, of modern materials, and very large openings, they begin to integrate. Often, one whole side elevation, which is a free masonry. So, you know, not cut stones, but the way you would build a, a farmer's wall or a mm-hmm. wall um, or a chimney in an early American building out of stones that were found in the fields and then laid. So, um, a kind of almost a Deliberate duality between the clean machine forms of the uh, of the steel construction and this evocation of handwork of tr- of tradition. So many have associated that with what's happening in the 1930s in general. This is happening in Corbusier's architecture, and we know that um, uh, Breuer had actually visited the Mandreau villa that Corbusier did mm-hmm. uh, for Madame de Mandro, the founder of, of Siam. So, with the fieldstone. Yeah, so Breuer knew what was happening in in Corbusier's work, there were other people in that moment who were working on it, Antonine Raymond relatively early on, Um, so it's happening in many places this, uh, if you could say, what you could say sort of recalibration of modernism to incorporate evocations of tradition, of handwork, and also um, A collage where things that seem like they come from contradictory worlds are deliberately brought um, into dialogue with one another. Now for me, I don't know if everybody agrees with me, but I think that the inclination to think that way was partly inspired in the Bauhaus preliminary course Mm -hmm. uh, where people worked with materials and textures and so I think that that gives a, a, a particularly Bauhaus genealogy to Breuer's approach. But once he gets to New England, it's also, whether it's opportunistic or inspirational, it corresponds with a way of saying, no, these are not radical modern houses. You see, they're connected to New England tradition. They're connected to these older houses. They're connected to the way you've always built. These stones came out of the very earth of of New England. If you travel around New England, one of the most uh, notable things are New England has got very rocky soil, so from the very beginning, the farmers, in order to farm, had to clear the rocks out of their field, and they would pile them and mark the boundaries of their field. So these free stone walls are really what defines the landscape and the territory of New England. So in that sense, um, he's using those very same materials and making them into construction materials for buildings. So that is really one of the most uh, striking, both visually and philosophically, mm-hmm. um, of, the, uh, you know, of the New England Um, houses. It's not only New England. They build a series of of buildings that are lesser well-known for some form or Bauhäusler in Pennsylvania outside of New Hope, Pennsylvania, which was an artist colony for the Fisher House. But there that corresponds actually to an image of that part of Pennsylvania, which was also a place of stone barns. So they're building in two regions where um, there's already an ethos for this search for a synthesis between modernity and tradition yeah Um,
0: and then with this sort of style of soft and modernism with this uh, New England vernacular he becomes really known for when there's the MoMA exhibition right so in 1949 Philip Johnson and the MoMA commissions him to basically do a model house that was exhibited Mm -hmm. in the garden of the museum so people can see walk in touch and feel and that made him did that make him famous, or what was sort of the influence or the, the consequence of that?
1: Well, that had enormous uh, influence, an enormous following, um, because it was, you know, this is immediately after World War II, where uh, the American economy is, the material restrictions are lifted, um, so it's easier to get um, timber, and there's a, it's a, the beginning of the explosion of suburbia. Um, also through incentives that were given to returning GI soldiers towards mortgages and the like. So MoMA is trying to influence what these suburbs will look like. They won't look all like neo-colonial houses. And so Breuer is in a sense giving a more domesticated version of the architecture he was doing in the 30s, using primarily um, timber to make this inverted roof butterfly plan Uh, with a pamphlet that went with it and it was completely furnished and the pamphlet that you got if you went to the show also included a list of where you could buy everything that was in the house so it was really the consumer's guide to a completely new vision of a post-war suburban um, living now it was very controversial some people found it you know grotesquely modern and there are a lot of cartoons about it uh, and um, you know things poking fun at it uh, but it was also it was intended to be a house that was simple enough that a local builder could build it even if the builder usually made more traditional houses so it didn't mm-hmm. do it. so in a certain way it was an abandonment of what Breuer was really interested in which was technological and material innovation in order to make something that might actually as we would say now kind of get into the market the housing market of um, uh, of American houses, uh, and there are in the archives of the Museum of Modern Art, as well as in the Breuer archives, incredible number of letters asking f- not only for the plans but if they could be modified. If I want to have my local builder do one, and one person writes and says, if I want to build it, could I build it in brick with the roof in the other direction? And you say? then why don't you just copy a colonial brick house if you want to turn Breuer's house into a brick house. And Breuer writes back these polite replies to almost all of these people. Um, And there are a number of copies that are already known. Some of them have drawings in the Breuer archive and are in Isabel Hyman's catalog of Breuer's work and in, um, in the book by Joachim Driller. But there are others. I gave a lecture once in Anchorage, Alaska of all places and you know, at the end of a lecture, usually the first hand that goes up, you think that person's probably going to have a slightly crazy question, might make for a weird discussion here. And I said, yes, and the woman said, you, while you're here in Anchorage, you should come and see my house because it's a copy of Breuer's House in the Garden. Did you go and see I it? said, okay, I'll come and see it tomorrow. And I thought it's going to look nothing like it. She's probably got some crazy notion, etc. It was a perfect copy. Really? Yeah. Wow. So there may be others out there that we still don't know about. So, um, And
0: it had and also even his it, furniture inside, right? I mean, not, not in Alaska necessarily, but yeah, in general. It, it also had a fair helped amount of his furniture. Yeah.
1: Promoting modern
0: furniture too. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, Everything well, down to modern toys. There were modern toys for the children in the t- children's playroom, which were supplied by a very innovative... Company that doesn't exist anymore that was called Creative Playthings that MoMA was very eager to uh,
0: right. promote. Okay. <laughs> yeah, one of the novelties wasn't just the way the building looked from the outside, but the, the, the layout, the interior layout, right? These interconnected spaces. And the idea behind it was that in the modern world, you know, we may not necessarily have two servants who can oversee the children, but so that when the mother is, you know, doing, doing something in the kitchen, she can actually. Overlook the the playroom because everything Mm -hmm. was sort of yeah
1: exactly so the Right the notion of the free and flexible floor plan But did you up and visit the house and um, yeah? Yeah, I mean, what's most extraordinary is when you stand in what was intended to be the parents bedroom Which is slightly elevated behind the chimney? You can see the roof so it's you know Caruzia always talks about the free floor plan This is almost a free roof plan (laughs) but there are these lines of vision everywhere and then when the cabinets open they make it possible to look through the cabinets and see what's going on in the in the dining area and in the living room and also then to look out towards where the the children are playing so you know on the one hand as you say the idea is the world is changing the middle class is growing but this is not a middle class who will have servants who are out of the 1930s when very wealthy people in the time of the depression could still have household servants and even live-in servants Um, and so there's a lot of thinking about how does the nuclear family um, operate middle-class nuclear family operate without um, servants so in that sense you could say this is a big uh, class shift economic shift on the other hand if you're a feminist historian you would say one of the things that's happening is that the you know the job of the house. while well, this house is, uh, and essentially putting the mother as kind of, uh, organizer, efficient worker, uh, prison guard, uh, prison guardian, surveiller. Everything is, uh, cr- created so that she can run this house machine uh, twenty-four hours a day and and never leave except to put the kids in the car and go to the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. By the by the by the mama house.
0: Breuer moves down to New York. He starts his own architectural practice. Well, He was already in New York. And he was already in New
1: York, and he had this famous. So the Geller fallout. House, the Geller House precedes the House in the Garden. So that then the Geller House was also very widely published and commented upon. So much of the commentary about the binuclear House is already there in the publication and of the of the Geller House. So I think the two together really. Put Breuer on the map for what he thinks is going to be his world, which is building single-family houses for the reopening economy, the return of the GI's, the huge building boom in America from you know maybe 1949 right through much of the 50s. yeah, which, but,
0: yeah no, I was, and then, but then comes his brutalist period. But, but actually, before that, I just wanted your thoughts on. So he had this dramatic fallout with Gropius, right? Who until then had been his mentor his supporter you know along the way since they met at the Bauhaus
1: do we really know what happened we uh there are various accounts of what happened but like a like a lot of fights that end in a divorce it's not you know you dropped my favorite cup and it broke There's, what actually happened is or like the shooting in Sarajevo that started World War One. World War One was waiting to happen. The divorce was waiting to happen. There was, I think Breuer had gotten to the point where he didn't want to be, uh, and Breuer. He wanted to be Breuer, not Gropius and Breuer. So I, I think it was waiting to happen. Um, for all his charm, he must have been very ambitious as well. And I, I, I you know, I, I think he was waiting to liberate himself. And um, you know, just as he had. Left Dessel to, to, uh, to go to Berlin. Now he was going to leave Cambridge to go to New York, where it was happening. Well, but why did Gropius, I mean, it seems
0: like such a slap in the face if you believe what happened, why did Gropius sort of very quickly make amends and then continue to support him and be there for him? Why not just like
1: cut him out then? Well, I think it speaks very well of Gropius. Uh, first of all, I think Gropius really admired him. You know, on a friend level, I think he actually really loved Breuer, so I'm sure he was terribly hurt. Mm. I mean, they were very, very close friends. Their families were very uh, houses were, were next to each and other. And the houses yeah. were across the way from one another, so it was very dramatic. Um, but I think Gropius was also the consummate diplomat. Um, although there was a certain coldness, I think, forever between Gropius and Mies but that's a whole other story. Um, but Breuer is really the most uh, one of the most if not the most talented of of Gropius's proteges. So it's hard to it's hard to definitively break with your star pupil even yeah, if you yeah. even if you're hurt yeah. by the the flare up. Yeah. Um,
0: okay, um moving on to the Brutalist period. So in the mid 1950s, there's really sort of a drastic shift from designing these nice residential houses in New England. Suddenly, he gets these big commissions, starting with the UNESCO headquarters in Paris, yeah. and then some and other Saint big ones. So Saint John's Abbey, Saint John's
1: Abbey, and UNESCO happened within literally a period of a month. So suddenly he has. of the largest commissions that anybody's going to get there because St. John's Abbey is actually, I think, a whole campus, university campus and a monastery, Uh, and UNESCO is to do the next building of the UN, and obviously the building of the the League of Nations, and kind of the disappointment of that from the modernists, and the building of the New York UN. um, These are not only major global um, institutions, but they're commissions that Feel immediately like milestones. So this is just an incredible commission that goes to Breuer, uh, though he's part of a trifecta with um, with Nervy, the engineer, and with the relatively young uh, Zerfus. Um, so this is a complete change of client, of way of working, the office has to get much bigger, he has to have a field office in Paris for uh, a number of years, and he's moving to institutional buildings rather than this uh, these residences, so on one level it's a almost a new start, a break, and um, the vocabulary appears to be quite different of building appears to be quite different almost predictably uh, from the houses. Um, reinforced concrete is going to be incredibly important in in both of those projects, um, as well as engineering prowess, but it's important to remember that if you look into the unbuilt projects of Breuer, particularly the project that he had done uh, in Britain as an exhibition project, an ideal city of the future, all made out of concrete. Of course, it was uh, commissioned by, I think it was called the British Concrete Association, something like that. It was a, a, a professional group that was promoting the use of reinforced concrete in British construction. And he had imagined this whole city. If you look at that project, Terry Harris wrote a nice essay on that in our book, um, it's almost a catalog of many of the buildings that he will build after, as it turns out afterwards. And so it doesn't seem like... So it raises the question what's really happening with these two commissions? Is it a complete sh- shift mm-hmm. in vocabulary? Moving towards what he would have hated the word apparently, I was told, brutalist, but moving towards what we call his brutalist large-scale institutional buildings? Uh, you know, Or is it an attempt to pick up undone work and and push it forward. I think it's a bit of both. Do you think it might have been the fact that he saw that others,
0: like you know, Cor- Corbusier started doing, his, you know, the Ronchamp and the, in his brutalist buildings, and maybe that was an impetus to?
1: Well, I think more out of Ronchamp, which is so um, idiosyncratic and personal and one-off. I think um, it's the Unité d'Habitation more, okay, yeah. more so. Mm-hmm. So also this complete shift from the idea of the curtain wall. To a frame of a building where the exterior wall is also structural, so you know, all of Breuer's work for IBM, uh, the federal buildings that he does in Washington D.C., uh, you know, all all of those are his his work on a kind of m- m- huge shift that's already represented by, let's say, by the unité of, of
0: Corbusier. Yeah, it's to me. I mean, some people criticize. Especially his later brutalist works as being sort of uniform and kind of uninteresting, but to me, I mean, some of his most successful ones, like the Saint John's Abbey or the Whitney, of course, have this just elemental power that it, it's just so unique that only yeah, Corbusier maybe, Louis Kahn mm-hmm. is something similar. Well, yeah,
1: I, and also the current fashion for brutalism has a kind of almost an uncritical group think about it, but it also takes out some of the individualities of these buildings that get uh, put into this big basket uh, brutalist. So even if you take um, the expressive concrete buildings of Breuer, say IBM Lagode or IBM Boca Raton in, in Florida, uh, or the Pirelli building that's now becoming the Hotel Marcel in, uh, in, in New Haven, you would never mistake those for a building by a different brutalist. So the idea that you can have a signature and your own approach to the textures, the expression, and this search for sculptural form that is as much a part of brutalism as exposed concrete. Uh, And Breuer has his own bush-hammered concrete that is not mistakable. You would never confuse the... Uh, oil paint of Rembrandt and the oil paint of Franz Hals, but you might say they're all Dutch painting of the same period. Yeah. Um, you would never confuse the concrete work of, of Paul Rudolph and uh, he's a little bit younger, and uh, and Breuer, or other well, names could come up, or yeah. for that matter, even the uh, English architecture that we call brutalist of the same period. Yeah.
0: Can you just briefly speak about the, because you did it last time so <clears throat> eloquently about the Whitney itself, and how there, are well, you refer to this, sort of juxtapositions and using different materials to such an incredible effect, is really
1: showcased at the Whitney. Yes, because I think so many people think of the Whitney only of the corner view, which is the uh, granite cladding over the, over the frame, just concrete and steel. Um, so that makes the, it seem like a monolith of one material. I've always been fascinated by the fact that it floats almost over a plane of, gl- of glass and that is, Breuer is very eloquent on that. In a lecture he gave about solids and voids and uh, the ability to have a kind of monumental presence uh, at the same time as to have transparency and fluidity of spaces. But that is played off against this these right angles of these two flange walls of textured um, naked concrete and Breuer is very interesting about that too he says well my building is on a um, on a corner and so you're going to see two facades in this New York gridded plan and what's the problem he says of a corner if you can occupy the corner you want to make something monumental there it'll always appear as though it's a fragment of something I want my thing to appear as a whole how can I make it appear as a whole if I frame off its space then it's a hole that's been pushed into the corner rather than a fragment that's been constructed in the corner. Um, So there's always with Breuer both a a simply visual pleasure, textural uh, way of dealing with different materials, the beautiful staircase there is a kind of microcosm of that, but there's often also a larger um, pragmatic reason, whether it be perception, that we perceive this as a monumental object, almost a minimalist sculpture, um, or you know whether it had a structural reason there's it's always the two combination of the pragmatic and yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. I mean that
0: staircase is after you pointed out to me then I went to the Whitney and saw it and it's really like six different materials at the yeah. same time it's just so striking
1: and in a compl- and an unbelievable mastery of uh, the ratio between the tread and the riser between uh, which so many architects, I mean, the staircase is one of the hardest things to do. How do you get the exact ratio to get the kind of experience of walking so that architecture is felt as much through your feet as through your eyes? And that is what that staircase is about. And even then the glimpses where it allows a glimpse to come out. How do you think he's
0: viewed today in the US? Are, are there mm-hmm. people who, who
1: followers of his today, you know, practicing architects today? I think one of the most incredible things that's happened, he's not alone. I was rereading the the preface to the um, Mies catalog that we published 20 years ago, and we were talking then about Mies having had a a renewal of interest. But I think Breuer, um, I think I wrote a bit about this in the preface to the collection of essays, but Breuer had like a crash. Breuer was close to being a curse word uh, in, the, I'd say, the decade after his death, not only because brutalism had fallen radically out of fashion. It was postmodernism was not interested in celebrating these these old white men heroes of, uh, of the modern movement, but also, of course, his involvement with the whole controversy over Grand Central Station. Yeah. That had really uh, put him in a lot of people's bad books. Um, but first, slowly, and then like a tidal wave, Breuer is now a cult figure. I mean, there's such a following of Breuer. There's the whole following for New Brutalism as a uh, as a fashion. How profound an understanding there is of New Brutalism is another question. But there is a kind of lifestyle fashion about um, about Brutalism. That's why I'm sure that this investor thinks that the uh, Hotel Marcel will work, because otherwise, it's at you a location that, where yeah. you would never want to take a hotel room. Um, But it's not just aficionados going out to look at things and collecting iPhone photographs of as many Breuer buildings as possible. I do think architects are responding to the textured aspects, the material aspects in in him in their own way. Lots of people, Toshiko Mori comes to mind because she's actually extended a Breuer house, although I'm not 100% Mm -hmm. in love with the way she did that, but she also learned from Breuer and I think there are Breuer-esque aspects in her work. There are lots of people who you can see look at Breuer and take something away that has got to do with what they're trying to do. So I think we're in a period in architecture where that whole attention to materials, surfaces, and textures is, um, has come back. Yeah, yeah. You know. It's almost yeah. as a reaction to pixelated digital, the pixelated digital world in which we live. There was this dichotomy between how
0: Breuer is perceived by the profession and by the former colleagues and people who worked with him and then his closer family. You know, on the one side is this adulation and and reverence and Yeah. And on the other side this feeling of neglect.
1: Well yeah, I mean I think you captured it perfectly in your in your piece, which is for all of the laughter and photographs of people smiling and swimming in the lake, et cetera, um, that looks like it was the most ideal family life, like a lot of outward appearances to other people. There were obviously some un deep unhappiness is there it's not a secret that breuer was a huge womanizer and that um his wife suffered as a result um, it's obvious that any architect with an international practice is often going to be absent but so the children suffered from that so you know it's so i think there's a myth of a uh, of breuer as the uh as the amazing um f- father that's a little bit destroyed by having enough distance that those people will talk about their scars, you know. On the other hand, I know people who um, are the children of people associated with Breuer and Chermayev and the whole group of Wellfleet. Uh, of the older friends of mine who, who also grew up in that world and they had the fondest memories of Breuer. So I think if you were a kid from another family, you didn't feel it the same way. So they have more fondness for Breuer, but of course they don't feel abandoned if Breuer's away for a long time. It's not their dad. Yeah. yeah. But (laughs) you can taste his goulash when he's there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What somebody should do sometime is translate some, retranslate. He loved Hungarian. Because you said taste his goulash, he has a statement about he doesn't eat his goulash as hot as he makes it, or something like that. He he uh, clearly Hungarian is filled with folk expressions, and he loves them, and he employs them all the time in literal translation. And when you encounter them, you think that makes no sense. I have no idea. There's one about you know the 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 bride stood out in the rain all night. You think what does that one mean?